Welcome again this weekend, and welcome to those of you who are gathered in the worship center. It is great to be moving towards being together, albeit with safety guidelines or restrictions. It's just great to be together. But for those of you who are gathered at home, we're thrilled you can join us in this way, and we continue to pray as a church for the move of the Holy Spirit in all of us that call Southview home, whether we are able to be together or not in the same space. Now, as you may be aware, for quite a few years, it's been our tradition to treat this weekend, the September long weekend, as a commissioning weekend for the church. And we often speak and pray for those who are called overseas to mission as international workers. However, we do believe strongly, and you may have heard us say it a number of times, we are all called to mission regardless of where we serve, whether it be overseas or whether it be somewhere in our province, in our city, in the community of Walden, wherever we are, we are uniquely positioned and we are sent ones sharing who God is and what he's done for us with the people that we come in contact with. And so this weekend, we're going to bring our summer series in the Psalms to a close. And honestly, I believe this is a great weekend to do this commissioning. Over the summer, we've looked at a number of Psalms, and they've highlighted everything from identity in God's presence to how the psalmist relates to human suffering in a variety of ways. We are human beings, but we can relate to the one who brings hope and peace despite what we're going through. And it's squarely in that reality that we move forward and carry this good news into the world wherever we go. And it's not news that diminishes or ignores experience, but rather news that Christ meets us and knows us in those experiences. And so today, a number of Psalms reference what we're going to be talking about, that being the harvest. The Psalms that we're going to read speak of a literal farmer's harvest, but the harvest in Scripture is almost always used as a metaphor for spiritual harvest, of lives being harvested in God's kingdom. So in Psalm 85, 12, we read, Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And in Psalm 67, 6, the earth has yielded its increase. And in Psalm 107, 37, they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. The theme doesn't just repeat through the Psalms, but again is a constant metaphor throughout Scripture. And we're going to use that metaphor as a springboard, and we're going to look at this theme through the lens of, in this Psalm series, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well and offers her living water and eternal life in himself. So let's pick up the story starting in verse 27. In fact, the whole conversation with the woman has already happened. So we're going to start in verse 27 of chapter 4. And remember, this is the word of God. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us, our hearts would be soft, and you would speak to us through this text. We ask this in your name. Amen. To make sure that we understand the context of this whole conversation, let's take a quick look at where Jesus and the disciples are and who this woman is. Now, earlier in the chapter, we read that Jesus had left Judea and was heading to Galilee. And so in order to get there, they needed to pass through Samaria. And they've stopped in a town of Samaria called Sychar. Jesus has stopped at a well. They call it Jacob's well. And this was on a land that Jacob himself had purchased in Genesis 33:19. And as you may remember from stories like the Good Samaritan, Jews despised Samaritans and had despised them for centuries. While studying, I had to look up this word I hadn't come across yet. It's, I think it's pronounced inveterate or inveterate. And it came up in my study of the Samaritans in this quote, the enmity between in, the enmity became inveterate between the Samaritans and the Jewish remnant. That is to say, their attitude towards each other had reached a point over such a long period of time that it was solidified and practically unalterable. And so this is the area where Jesus and the disciples found themselves stopping with Jesus resting at the well and the disciples going further into town to get food. And this is the context in which Jesus finds himself talking to a Samaritan woman at this well. And in this case, it's a double negative. Not only is this person a despised Samaritan, 
but it's a woman, and a rabbi didn't generally talk to women. And despite this scenario, being a surprise to the disciples, they say nothing to question it because they know and they trust Jesus. So we haven't read the conversation. We don't have time to go through the whole conversation between Jesus and this woman. And maybe many of you are familiar enough with the passage. But today, I think all we need to know is what her response was to the life that she found in Jesus's words. Her response is profound in a couple of ways. First, she forgets her water jar and leaves to tell people about this conversation and ends with the question, can this be the Christ? Now, being a woman in that day, she would still be considered an unreliable source for such a claim. And yet, they listen and they go see for themselves in verse 30. Some writers make a wonderful connection that the water jar is left behind being symbolic of her accepting Jesus's living water from their conversation. And not only was she one of the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but she was considered a Gentile. And this is another forecast for what we're going to see later on in our passage. And it's a great message for the season of Epiphany. And we say it all the time, just after Christmas. Christ is for everyone. This is something we don't want to miss. I love what F.F. Bruce says about her witness. The living water which the woman received from Jesus had certainly become an overflowing fountain in her life. And others were coming to share the refreshment that she had begun to enjoy. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. The most unlikely soul may prove the most effective witness. But for her witness, her fellow townsfolk would never have come to know Jesus. And so there's two takeaways for me in this. First, it is God's power and the work of the Spirit that brings refreshment, that leads people to himself. And also, he can and will use any of us. It's not the job of the verbose or the extrovert. It's for all of us to share wherever we are. So while this is happening, the disciples have indeed returned with food and they're encouraging Jesus to eat. And Jesus responds similarly to them as he did with the woman at the well when he's talking about water in verses 13 and 14. And he responds to the disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So through our lens, perhaps we know what he's getting at. After all, we've been able to read the whole conversation at the well But to the disciples, of course, they're thinking practically and immediately wonder, did somebody, did somebody give him food? But Jesus goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The phrase, the will of him who sent me occurs again later on in the gospel of John in chapter 530 and chapter 638. And it's one of the most important ideas of John's Christology. John trying to show us who Christ is, what he's about. 
And he's speaking of a complete identity of will, or in other words, the complete obedience of Jesus to his father. And this is a callback to John 3, 16, all the way through verse 20, where Jesus, he's restating to his disciples just exactly who he is and why he's here. And at the same time, Jesus may be reminding them of the text from Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So after doing that, Jesus goes on to show his disciples in the following verses that they are a part of this same work. And we'll go back to verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Again, This is a metaphor that's commonly used in scripture. And Jesus is speaking to their being four months. Then comes the harvest. The disciples may be hearing that as a proverb they're familiar with regarding the sowing and the reaping cycle of agriculture. But Jesus is saying the fields are white for harvest now. Seed has been sown and they are to reap. And the apostle Paul speaks to this theme as well in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that's where we come in. We have a role. We are to plant and water and reap. We are laborers as ones living in and under the reign of Christ. When continuing reading F.F. Bruce's commentary on this passage, I was fascinated by the following. It's a really cool connection. He says, we may wonder if this was the same city of Samaria as was evangelized by Philip a few years later. And if it was, the events that took place at this time could explain the ready credence which great crowds gave to Philip when he proclaimed to them the Christ in Acts 8. A further fulfillment of the principle of verse 38. Others had toiled, and Philip entered into their toil. As we read further in John 4, the people that had heard the witness of the Samaritan woman have come to see for themselves. And it shows how comfortable they are with Jesus, just how confident they are in him, that they ask him to stay, not merely to pass through. And over this time, they've come to know Jesus for themselves. They didn't believe only because of what they were told, but now had had a personal experience 
that caused them to reiterate the point made by the Samaritan woman. And they say, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior or Messiah of the Jews alone, but a universal Savior, the Savior of the world. Oftentimes as Christians, we think of the world as being a world of of nature, earth and sky, sexuality, work, health, or sickness. We connect it to our physical existence, but I think it's helpful to zoom out and try to get to the root cause of those things. When we say that Christ is the Savior of the world, I want us to think of the world as one that has been structured by our own human will and rationality, particularly self-absorption, selfishness, these things that run directly in opposition to God and to the good of people around us. And simply put, this is the sin of the garden, that we would become like God. And let's be honest with ourselves, we all struggle with it. And generally speaking, when we consider the world, not only do we get wrapped up in an us versus them mentality, but too often we also choose to focus on the perceived low-hanging fruit of morality issues. It seems like the most obvious starting point. You do that, you shouldn't. However, the world we're talking about here isn't merely the physical existence. Our physical experience is a symptom of a deeper reality. Humanity, including us, have truly made God in our own image or cast him aside altogether. This is completely the opposite of how and why we were created. And this is the main sin that we all deal with or ignore altogether. And all other obstacles between ourselves and God stem from that reality. And what I'm trying to do here is to raise the importance of humility, seeing ourselves in the people that we come in contact with in the world while at the same time lowering the us-versus-them trap that we often fall into when we're thinking about our relationships with unbelievers. Because now, as Christ followers, we live under the reign of Christ. We submit daily, and we go out into this world as his ambassadors, hopefully with humility and understanding of what we've actually been rescued from. N.T. Wright says that God did not want to rescue humans from creation any more than he wanted to rescue Israel from the Gentiles. He wanted to rescue Israel in order that Israel might be a light to the Gentiles, and he wanted to thereby rescue humans in order that humans might be his rescuing stewards over creation. And so as we live out the kingdom by submitting and entering into the toil that Jesus is speaking about, we recognize that we are sent ones, that this is what Christ is asking of us. 
Later on in the Gospel of John, we get a picture of our role as sent ones in chapter 20. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And before Christ's ascension, he commissions his disciples and in turn us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This evangelistic calling by Christ to us must be a part of our experience and identity as those who follow him. And it's worth repeating, it's not just for those who have a gift for evangelism or are clearly extrovert, or they like people, or the ones that can talk well. Each of us is called to this, wherever we are. And, this is the good news for the introverts out there like myself, it is made possible for each of us by the Holy Spirit. So let's ask this question What does this look like? And you've likely heard it many times here at Southview, but as sent ones, we are to share Christ with the world, and we are to do so through word and action. It seems easier to leave the idea of evangelism through words to the talkers. And I have subscribed to that and for years had comfortably tiptoed around having to say anything ever and just let my actions speak. With one drawback, uh, I found personally that my actions weren't overly impressive or helpful. But Paul says something about using words in Romans 10. He says, how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Using words to share the truth of Christ is imperative as a part of the process. And that doesn't mean that we have to specifically walk each of our friends through the Romans road or gather around a table and draw a picture of a chasm with the cross as the bridge. Those are fine. However, knowing how to articulate what God has done for us and why it matters is a critical piece of sharing Christ. And I think on a practical level, it's helpful to ask ourselves the question, What has knowing Jesus meant for me? Ask ourselves that question on our own, and we can celebrate that reality, but also know that when you share it with someone else, it is God working in them as they hear it. Honestly, there isn't as much pressure on you as you may think. Be authentically you. And be willing instruments of God's kingdom. And I can safely say 
that that is the crux of what God is asking of us. Though I joke about being underwhelming in my actions over the years, our actions have significant and equally important impact on our witness as Christ's followers. First of all, it seems to be a significant way that Jesus showed who he was throughout the Gospels. And it's abundantly clear that Jesus cared about the problems of those who were in need or were suffering. In Matthew 25, Jesus suggests that the one sign by which true believers can be distinguished from those who make empty professions is acts of love done in Jesus' name, emulating his example, being concerned for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, completely appropriate for those who worship a God who himself displays a concern. And James 2, James bluntly says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And 1 John 3, in verse 17 It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Being instruments of God's kingdom, sharing this good news through word and action, We enter the world knowing that we will enter into the toil by sowing and reaping and trusting God by his spirit that he's doing the work around us as we join with him. And this world is not just a place of physical existence with morality at the center, but rather a world where all of us have been a part of the problem, following our own selfish desires and pushing against God's will by instead following our own. And it's all of our story up until now. However, we will still struggle, but we are a part of a greater kingdom. Under the reign of Christ, Choosing to submit to his will and sharing with others what that looks like through our own story and wherever we have been uniquely placed. In some ways, I was hesitant to share my own experience in this message. My fear being that any one of my friends could watch this and then think that I see them as a project or that I have a very specific and narrow agenda. And I have people outside this church that I care about deeply, uh, largely in music or in, in hockey. And these are some of my closest friends. I certainly don't think I'm better than them, and I, I'm not even sure that I think I'm less sinful than they are. And to be honest, they would likely agree. My friends and I struggle with the same thing. An inherent way of living life 
that puts ourselves first and foremost. And I personally believe leveling this playing field is crucial. One of my main hopes, what I pray for in these relationships, is that I'll be there for these friends whenever they need me, particularly in crisis. That they will know that I love them. That I would be an important person for them. And I feel free knowing that it isn't so much on my shoulders to convince them or prove something, but rather to emulate Christ as best I can and be ready to share when or if the opportunity arises. But mostly, I want to be a normal human being. Be present. Be genuine. Like I said earlier, be authentically you and a willing instrument of God's kingdom. And it's with that that I'd like to pray and commission you for the year to come. A year of so many unknowns. But we're going to commission you just as we commission those of us who are called to missions overseas. And as the pastors come forward for those who are gathered here in the worship center, remember, all of us are uniquely positioned. And God has made you to just be you. And regardless of what gifts you think you have or don't have, the Holy Spirit is in you, enabling you to go forward in boldness to live out the calling that each of us have as sent ones. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that we do not do this alone or by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. For those of us that find ourselves anxious when considering this calling you have laid on our life, I pray peace. Give us your words when words are necessary. Give us silence and faithful obedience when actions or listening will speak louder. Give us a confidence and a boldness by your spirit that would enable us to participate as instruments of your kingdom. Help our children who can relate to that same Holy Spirit and are also your instruments to accomplish works for your kingdom in their own way. Help each of us to remember that you are doing the work in the lives of those around us and at the same time, continuing the work in us as well. We ask this in your name. Amen. And before we close, just a reminder that on Sunday morning, on September 6th, we have an outdoor communion from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. So if you're watching this and you can make it, get in the car. And honestly, I can think of no better way to start this year, again, in a year of unknowns, but to be spiritually fed by Christ in this meal and to accomplish his work in our world. So I hope you can join us. And as we go, go with these words of benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in peace.